0: Hey, reed if you were leaving your house right now, would you take your jeans?
1: Like, for good?
0: Yeah, you you were fleeing.
1: No. No? God, no. What, what,
0: what pants would you take if you had to take one pair of pants?
1: One pair of pants? I got some yeah. with the zip-off knees recently. Those seem versatile.
0: Wow, some, like, uh, early 2000s Abercrombie vibes.
1: I mean, I got them from 18 e. so it's, like, a, li- it's a little let. There's more going on, but it's not, I mean, it's probably <laughs> the same thing.
0: Yeah, those are your tactical pants. If you had to uh, migrate halfway across the country due to dust storm.
1: I think so. It's those are like. Yeah, it has to be. Those are like probably my most tactical.
0: Pants technology has progressed in the last 80 years.
1: Yes, it has Uh, significantly. I feel like there's other things that have progressed far more, like even in the clothing sphere. But yeah, pant technology is one of those things not at heddles
0: (laughs) welcome back to heddles blowout my name is david my name is reed and we are your hosts on this gene journey through time uh, here on the seventh part of our History of Denim series that's taken us all the way from the high seas of 16th century sailors to the fake cowboy sex ranches of the 1930s. Uh, if you remember last time, we discussed the cultural sea change with genes surrounding the image of the American cowboy. Cowboys, they were this fantasy ideal that a lot of Americans wanted to see themselves as. You know, rugged, self-reliant, adventurous standing up for what's right, and the connection to the nature and the outdoors. That led denim jeans to be worn for the first time as a fashion statement, you know, that you could embody those values by wearing jeans, and plus as a cultural signifier that you had enough money and cultural capital to visit a dude ranch out west. But the real-world foil to the fantasy cowboy was the Okie the often denim-clad farmer of the American West, who was displaced by the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression of the 1930s. Which is where we pick up the story today as we delve into Denim getting depressed. Some context before we get too deep into 1930s America, that uh, this was the time of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, which were two events that radically altered American history, and the history of Denim is in the same time. Uh, uh, the Great Depression was, up until very recently, very very recently, the worst economic downturn in U.S. history. In the 1920s, the stock market had rampant speculation that outpaced actual economic productivity, and this made this big bubble where stocks and you know wealth were vastly overestimated to their actual value. Which sounds pretty familiar in 2020, does it not?
1: No, not with Tesla leveraged like 3,200 times their earnings.
0: Dude got like $100 billion in the last like six months of uh, imaginary money. They make nine
1: cars a year. Like I do not, I don't understand how he is worth it. They make nine cars and three trucks and sell like flamethrowers. It's the most bizarre company I've ever seen. I apologize.
0: Yeah, well... There were a lot of those companies in the 1920s that were making money on paper, but didn't have any actual productivity to back it up. Um, And this all came to a head on Black Tuesday and also Black Thursday, which happened within five days of each other in October of 1929, where all the investors sort of collectively realized that all these companies that they were invested in were bullshit. And we're like, oh, I, I better get out of this before everyone realizes what's going on and it's bullshit. And they all try to withdraw all their money at once. Um, it's sort of like you know when someone yells fire in a crowded theater and makes for the exit uh, and you have a stampede of people. Uh, I know it might take some imagination to think of what a crowded theater is at this point of 2020, but hopefully this will make more sense uh, in the future of this podcast. So on the in the end of uh, October on Black Tuesday, the stock market dropped twelve percent in one day, and this is before they had those like stop gaps in the market where if you dropped too much, they just shut the thing down and like reboot it and start over and say simmer down, everybody. It was just no bottom for how much you could lose in one day, and the big problem here was it was very unregulated. So a lot of people were investing on credit. And didn't have the money to pay for the stock when it went underwater so they were you know putting all of their stock buys on the equivalent of like a modern day credit card and if the stock value went up that was great but if it went down then they owed money that they didn't have to pay back and when that happened the money stopped flowing and it set off a chain reaction of businesses closing people losing their jobs foreclosures and just generally a bad time for all people involved for about the next decade some statistics From the early uh, era of the Great Depression. Between 1929 and 1933, industrial production dropped 47%. The total GDP dropped 30%. Unemployment reached 20%, which was about 15 million people out of work. Half of the banks failed because when people went uh, to clear out their stock accounts, they went to the bank to get their money, but you know, the bank doesn't have all that liquid money on hand. It was issuing it in loans to people. And so half the banks failed, uh, sort of like that scene in It's a Wonderful Life. If you, you've seen that, Reed?
1: I have seen that.
0: Yeah. The, the money's not in, uh, in the bank. It's in Joe's house and, and, and Fred's house.
1: So it's an instructional film, it turns out.
0: Yeah. Instructional film about what happened in the, the early 30s in the United States. But more relevantly to our story and uh, the Okies, this coincided with the worst drought in American history. If you remember H.D. Lee that we talked about a few episodes ago and his business shipping vegetables, farmland had moved further and further westward with the expansion of the railroad. And farmers had removed native grasses in the, the Great Plains, like in Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, and replaced them with corn, wheat, and other cash crops. Uh, when an unprecedented drought hit the Midwest and the Great Plains in the 1930s, this led to massive soil erosion and dust storms because those grasses kept blowing everything in place. So you didn't have like the, the roots of these native grasses that had evolved specifically to deal with these climates, and instead you just had a bunch of corn and wheat and other useless stuff in the sense of the biome there of what the native plants were that uh, it just spun up all this dust that went everywhere and i've got some uh quotes here from the brownsville texas herald in april 1933 of what these dust storms were like that uh we got one here of freezes due to hit texas late tonight worst sandstorm in history blots out sun sort of burying the lead there um
1: (laughs) it's like that scene in mission impossible i don't know which one maybe ghost protocol when they're in uh Dubai, oh, in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, or I'm, they're okay. Dubai, I don't even yeah, know. Dubai. The, yeah, and like it's just all of a sudden they're in brown. Mm-hmm. There's nothing but brown. That's what I'm imagining yeah. right now.
0: They called these black blizzards, and we have got the the dateline here of record sandstorm strikes Texas, uh, April thirteenth, Perrytown, Texas. The worst sandstorm in history swept the northern panhandle of Texas today stalling automobiles and turning day into night. Homes and business houses had to turn on lights as the dust obscured the sun and buildings a block away were not visible at times. Many automobiles were stalled, mechanics said, because the dust and static electricity killed their motors. Those cars, which still ran, were proceeding cautiously, vision being only several feet at best. The wind raged from the southwest most of yesterday, but shifted during a lull early today and broke with renewed fury Sweeping dust ahead of a chill north wind.
1: There's a headline elsewhere on this page where it says Oklahoma, Kansas get sandstorm. And it sounds like it's like a new store.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's the same one. It's happening the same day.
1: And it says one of the worst dust and sandstorms in years raked the western sections of Oklahoma and Kansas last night and early today. Topsoil was whipped about in the teeth of a gale, which reached a maximum velocity of 50 miles an hour. This is like a also the sweet spot of of journalism where they could sort of write however they wanted, but there was also uniformity in how to how to spell things. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can yeah. you could say like "raked in the teeth of a gale," like
0: yeah, it's great visual there.
1: Oh, "teeth of a gale" is a, is a wonderful little phrase.
0: Yeah, just as you mentioned, this is a thing that isn't just happening in Texas; it's happening in Kansas, Oklahoma. New Mexico and Colorado at the same time, making all of this farmland pretty much completely unusable to a lot of the farmers that had showed up to farm it just like you know 10 or 20 years earlier that had that ability now that the railroad could reach there and they could ship their crops.
1: So this might be an insane question, but there's a story like later down in that story, they're talking about Dodge City and they were like, it started snowing and raining during this dust storm. Does it turn into a mud storm?
0: That's a good question.
1: What happens? I'm so like they—they're just like this happened, but they have zero specifics.
0: It, it sounds like something that would inspire a uh, a menu item at Dairy Queen. <laughs> now that we're this far away from the destruction,
1: the mud blizzard. Yeah, inspired the Kansas, the, the Dodge City mudstorm. Inspired by the plight of thousands, <laughs> this chocolatey treat.
0: So, just to give you a picture of how biblically hellacious things seemed at this time although it's also uh funny thinking back to this summer and the scenes in the northwest uh the pacific northwest of the united states and how like the sun was blotted out by ash and uh fire and like all of san francisco was like a weird red hellscape you know just the way history's rhyming here pretty pretty interesting Many of the farmers here, they they couldn't even harvest the crops that they did get off of their uh, land, even throughout all these dust storms in the Dust Bowl, because they didn't have the money to hire workers and couldn't get a loan because of the depression. Oh, a lot of crops rotted in the fields while people went hungry, and the fields went further to ruin because there was no one there to maintain them, which further exacerbated the problem.
1: That also sounds familiar, like this summer.
0: (laughs) yeah. Remember when there were all those like mountains of potatoes that no one could eat?
1: They couldn't figure out the supply chains because like, it, was, it was an absolute mess. They're like restaurants aren't buying our produce and there was like huge lines at food banks. Meanwhile, we were like, we don't know.
0: Uh, the market will find a way.
1: Always does, right?
0: With their farms and futures in ruins, millions of the people that lived in these areas migrated elsewhere to find work. Uh, between 1930 and 1939, two and a half million people left Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, Nebraska, and Kansas. And even though most of them weren't from Oklahoma, these people were collectively called Okies, which was a term of derision in the idea of like poor people loading up the truck and traveling away from their troubles and, you know, putting grandma in a rocking chair in the back, sort of like, you know, Tom Joad and the grapes of wrath, which, uh, Another Steinbeck reference. We're, we're just full of them in this podcast.
1: Just uh, ignoring Jim Casey here, I see. <laughs> the, labor, the labor leader, the much maligned.
0: Yeah, I, you know, he, he was a good guy, the, not uh, Tom Jode. Actually, it's been way really too long since I've read *Grapes of Wrath to make any
1: intelligible comment on that. <laughs> it ends with a birth in a barn that's flooding. That's just like the thing that I'll never get over. It starts with a guy returning to an empty home, and that is how it ends. It's like one of those things where it's like it's all about the journey. It has to be with that beginning and ending. I'm
0: just imagining the like three English majors that are listening to this right now that are yelling at their phones, like, "Oh, like the baby's name
1: was this, and this happened, and <laughs> didn't
0: he, as we try to muddle through, like, didn't even reading it 15, about 15 years the weird ago.
1: Allegorical chapters, like the turtle crossing the road, that symbolize. I know, I didn't. I. I skipped Mm. those for the most part. I was always reading it for assignments. Back
0: to the Okies. The image of these Okies traveling across the the country uh, was sort of most of these farmers wore denim overalls and work pants. Um, Which, back to our intro, is when you can only take one pair of pants with you, it is likely the hardest wearing one. They were looked down upon for wearing farming and work clothing in the cities that they relocated to uh, to look for work. A lot of these uh, people went west to California and settled in the San Joaquin Valley um, or in LA or just like other areas in the San Fernando Valley, um, which was very different culturally than where they
1: came from. That's bon- uh, Fonte land at that point. Now we're in a John Fonte's territory. We've, we've <laughs> reached Steinbeck.
0: We are too far south for, for yeah. Steinbeck. It, it gave a different sense to what denim and jeans and overalls were being used for and the kinds of people that wore them. But the difficulties of these twin hardships were eased by the action of the presidential administration that came in in 1933, which was FDR and the New Deal, which uh, we'll get into all the things that he did and all the denim that he sponsored shortly after this break. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. Okay, before we get to the New Deal... Uh, Reed would like to do an Oklahoma interlude.
1: So I thought that Oklahoma was a little bit like the play Oklahoma exclamation point. We should be yeah, Oklahoma, the, the musical, the musical the, the, with the exclamation point, to be clear. Uh, I thought it was a little bit more timely. Um, so I wrote down some Oklahoma thoughts.
0: Hit us, hit us with them.
1: So it's first musical that's ever, that was written by Rodgers and Hammerstein as a team. They had done some solo work, but this was like their first joint effort. It was commissioned which is fascinating. Like People were like, you should turn this other play called Green Grow the Lilacs into a musical. Mm. And uh, so they did. It ran for 2,212 performances. I had to look that up. That's was a lot Green
0: of- Grow the Lilacs or Oklahoma?
1: Oklahoma. Green Grow the Lilacs ran for like 60-something. It was not a hit. No. But some, some enterprising individual was like, yo, but if you put this to music, we got ourselves a hit. And it was like one of the first musicals that actually had a plot Before that, they were kind of just like cats, even though cats came out in the 80s. Uh, Mm. They were just like a bunch of songs and an incoherent uh, thing happening. But um, no, Oklahoma has fascinated me for a long time because I feel like... So it's the most popular play or piece of entertainment in US history, allegedly. I'm going to say allegedly a lot, probably. Across any medium or specifically on stage? So across any medium because they made it in, they televised it in the forties, like at the end of the forties and put, it was like one of the things that you could actually watch on the two or three networks. Um, they would run it back a lot. So like everyone was familiar with the story of Oklahoma for a very long time. I would argue that that's probably faded in the last like 30 years. It was this sort of story that every American could theoretically relate to because it's like a love story and, uh, broke dudes vying for it story. And, uh, there's pretty clear-cut lines of good and evil um, between Curly the cowboy and Judd the farmhand. Speaking mm-hmm. of our, our sort of two, two areas, David, are you familiar with the plot of Oklahoma?
0: Uh, vaguely. Why, why don't you refresh our memory?
1: So in the early 1900s, a cowboy named Curly is super stoked on this girl named Lori who works on a farm. And uh, he wants to take her to a box social. This is, this is the most famous piece of entertainment in American history. Uh, mm-hmm. Wants to take her to a box social. So he freestyles the song. And then he tells her he's rented a surrey, which is like a fancy horse-drawn carriage. She's like, No, nah, you didn't. And he's like, Yeah, you're right. Even though he did. But she says no. And then his nemesis, a guy named Judd, who's a farmhand, not a cowboy, ends up inviting uh, Lori to the dance. Uh, just despite Lori says yes, despite Curly. It's kind of, to be honest, unclear why she would want to spike Curly. Like he just sings her a song and she's like, no. Did Judd get a Surrey though? No, Judd, Judd didn't really bring anything to the table. He just works on the same farm as her. And he's super creepy. Uh, he's described as lonely and disturbed. Um, so Judd's not like the, the most popular guy in town. There's a weird side plot too, with a guy named Will Parker and, uh, Edo Annie who falls in love with, uh, Persian street vendor named Ali Hakim. So Oklahoma was kind of bringing in a lot of different things.
0: A little bit progressive for its time to have... uh... Not the
1: way they treated Ali, but they included a (laughs) character of color. Um, Ali is like kind of a womanizer uh, though, I guess so. They treated him nice in that way. Lori decides that she really wants to go, or she can't figure out who she likes, Curly or Judd, so she decides to take a love potion that she buys from Ali Hakim. It's just opiates which they make clear in the story. But she takes it, and it does exactly what the potion was intended to do, so I don't know if it's like a tacit endorsement of opiates as a decision-making elixir. Sounds very
0: American. Very American. Very
1: odd. Yeah, yeah, no, Ali Hakim's like, yo, if you take this, you'll have visions, and you'll figure out who you should be with. And she takes it, and she figures out who she should be with, even though it's not what he sold her. Goes to the dance, ends up choosing Curly, they get married three weeks later, which seems aggressive even in a even in a vintage timeline and then uh judge shows up at the wedding and ends up trying to kill Curly, but instead falls on his own knife and kills himself. They literally have a trial at the wedding in which they declare Curly not guilty, and then they leave on a honeymoon, and that is the play. Over. pretty bleak.n't that Wild is the most popular play in America? yeah. Very grim, but so my theory is is that America has always been like work curly, we're like the virtuous cowboy who gets the girl, but actually mm-hmm. we've always been judd. We're like the drunk, depressed, lonely farmhand who ultimately falls on our own neck.
0: What is the knife in this metaphor? And are we have we fallen on it right now?
1: I think so. I think our knife is creating a government that we ended up allowing like half the country to hate as. They. Platform. Hmm. that's like their whole platform is hating the government that the people built that's that's like my real apologies everyone. oh there's this one scene i should note where curly goes over to judd's house and literally just says you should kill yourself and then sings a song about it i need to watch oklahoma again dude there's this thing there's a thing that Cur- judd tries to kill curly with earlier in the play called the little wonder it's just like casually introduced. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a little wonder. It's a kaleidoscope, but it's got a blade in it. And so when someone tries to twist it and see like the cool shit inside, it just stabs you in the eye. It's called the little wonder.
0: I don't remember Oklahoma nearly well enough to call you on this, but this just sounds like bullshit. I'm, I'm going to have to look this up for myself.
1: Yo, look up little wonder in Oklahoma and you will find it is a devastating implement of violence.
0: All right, Yo, everyone. This has been a uh, Oklahoma interlude with Reed. Check out Oklahoma. (laughs) Okay, so the New Deal. Reid, what do you think of when you hear the term New Deal? Or actually, what did your grandparents think of the New Deal and FDR in general? Do you have any sense of what their uh, perception of, of, of that period of history was like?
1: When I hear the term New Deal, I think of Ogden High School in Utah because it was like a PWA project and a very proud thing like part facet of it was that it was a PWA project. Uh, my grandparents, my grandmother, I know liked it. Cause she was like a crazy liberal in a good way in New York too. Uh, but mm-hmm. not yeah. Um And uh, so she, I know was a big Roosevelt fan and I'm sure my grandfather was too, but he was fighting the war, um, in the war in the forties and he was young in Akron in the thirties but I imagine he was, he was a fan of it because uh, it put a lot of people to work who were not in work.
0: Yep, it was the same thing on my end except for my grandma who was very, very conservative. And uh, even though the uh, New Deal programs electrified her house, she still hated FDR until the day she died. <laughs> but it's hard to overstate how beloved FDR was in the U.S. compared to other presidents. He is the only president in U.S. history to be elected not two times, not three times, but four times. Uh, He was president for like 11 years before he died, and he probably could have just kept getting reelected over and over and over. That uh, in the 1936 election, his second election, he won 523 out of 531 electoral votes. You just think of the last election, which like was, is it going to be what, like 306 for Biden? And that scene is like a relatively uh, definitive win. This is like 98% of all the electoral votes went to
1: FDR in 1936. Can you imagine being Alf Landon? hmm
0: <laughs> Kind of a, kind of a depressing thing of just like, well, I got Maine and I guess I got Vermont, but, uh... That's most of the country doesn't like me. Yeah, that's he all he got. from
1: Kansas. Mm-hmm. How did he end up pulling Maine and Vermont? That's a, for a different podcast, but that's fascinating. That man was that man was a governor at Kansas.
0: I wonder if it was like maple syrup tariffs that FDR had imposed or something. But...
1: Some weird vendetta. They're just like, eh, I don't know. We'll vote for the guy named Alf. Yeah. Alf Landon does not sound like a president, unfortunately.
0: How and why? Did everyone love FDR? Well, he took office in 1933 after Herbert Hoover, whose uh, response to the Great Depression was basically, yeah, the market will figure it out. Um, But the market didn't figure it out. And so FDR came in with a new deal, was the, the name of his signature platform for how he was going to get America back on its feet. And it was a series of programs and administrations designed specifically to put people back to work and improve the infrastructure and get people to start producing again, to uh, start the economy revving to the point where productivity and actual created value um, would match what the economy reflected of it and investments and get things you know rolling on their own. So this included everything from uh, bringing electricity to my grandma's house in Fulshire, Texas. Federally insuring people's money in banks so they didn't have runs on the banks again, like in It's a Wonderful Life. Subsidizing farmers so it was economically viable to farm again. Painting murals. There were a lot of murals that were painted with uh, New Deal money. And then to the one that we are most concerned with, the Civilian Conservation Corps, or henceforth we'll refer to as the CCC. Or, yes, yes, yes. Trip C. So the CCC was ostensibly designed to help with infrastructure and forestry conservation, but it was also FDR's solution to what do you do with several million unemployed young men so they don't become Nazis, which was a real problem in other countries where you have uh, young people with seemingly no future and endless time on their hands. Another reflection that sounds a little bit familiar these days. At uh, Albert, he put together a great article on the CCC, which we'll link in the description. It was on Heddle's like two or three months ago. Um, but the CCC plays a crucial role in the distribution of denim in the United States. We don't have anything as awesome as the CCC today, but if we had to compare it to something, it's probably most analogous to AmeriCorps. Uh, it was like joining the army, but instead of killing people, you built schools, maintain national parks, and learn how to read. Oh, it was referred to in, uh, by many folks as FDR's tree army for the, uh, the, same reason of sort of how it functioned it was open to all unemployed men aged 18 to 25, uh, that would sign up for six months stints at a time. And they got paid $30 a week, which is about 600 bucks in 2020 dollars and five of it they kept for themselves and 25 they sent home to their families. Which was, you know, all well and good because uh, room and board was covered and they didn't really have any expenses if you were in the CCC. So all this stuff is amazing. And like uh, having a program like this that could you know, help with people that were unemployed, didn't want to be for whatever reason. But the most relevant thing to our story in denim is the uniforms that were issued by the CCC. Most of the work that they were doing was manual labor, construction, chopping trees, and they didn't need camouflage like uh, anyone in the military would because no one was shooting at them because no one was angry that they were, you know, building schools. Uh, so naturally, they wore that American work cloth, denim. Uh, the dress uniform that they used was wool, but the standard issue work uniform was the six one two four A denim trouser and the 6-125A denim pullover jacket.
1: For my uh, clarity, can you distinguish between dress uniform and work uniform?
0: Yeah, um, good question there. So, like, dress uniform is sort of the thing of, like, you know, you imagine all the soldiers at the, like, last dance with their sweetheart before they go off to World War II when they're wearing, like, the brown, like, khaki shirt and pants with, like, the wool tie and the hat and the, like, green jacket. Yes, that's like the dress uniform that they would wear on, you know, occasions where they had to be presentable. And then there was like either the work or the like battle uniform, which is what they actually wore in the field. Um, And because the people in the CCC weren't fighting anyone, uh, they were mainly, you know, working saws and shovels and hammers. They were wearing work clothing. Um, And that's what they wore on the job
1: site. Did they get dress uniforms like issued to them, though?
0: Oh, they did also get dress uniforms, and those those were mostly made out of wool. And those were a lot of uh, just leftover World War One surplus uniforms that had been sitting around for the last 10 years, or I guess 15 years at that point, um, for the first few years of the CCC before they started developing their own uniforms, uh, which developed into a lot of the uniforms used in World War II. A lot of the, the new um, look that changed between the wars happened with uh, what people were wearing during the CCC. One, two, four, a denim trouser was like a denim Chino, but it had patch pockets on the front and patch pockets on the back. And it had a back cinch. Um, and it was like this full figure, like, uh, boxy, like straight leg thing. And the jacket, the one, two, five, a was a half placket popover. That was apparently very, very unpopular. And many of the people that were, uh, enlisted in this they ripped it in half to just make it a jacket and then only buttoned the top where it had buttons and then they'd have like a raw rip down the middle of the bottom so between these two pieces of the CCC uniform this was the largest use and deployment of denim in history that about 3 million people went through the CCC over the course of its existence which was at least 3 million of these denim uniforms that were on the legs and the backs of its workers
1: that's this like really throws a wrench into our Mickey Mouse ears metaphor about the Dude Ranch. <laughs> you know, like it's just like the government just shipped out three million pairs of mouse ears.
0: Yeah. Uh but that really it, cut
1: into the uh like the souvenir novelty value of uh of denim, huh? Oh,
0: well, it was different kinds of denim, is like these were more what you imagine like sailor pants almost look like, or uh like car and not like Jeans, I suppose. The difference between the cowboy and the the CCC narrative uh, that's important to me is that the cowboy one was worn by rich people for fantasy and for cultural cachet, whereas the CCC was worn by utility or for utility by an increasing like critical mass of people. And so it was just like greater and greater exposures, even though it was in different cultural contexts. And it
1: sounds like it was a different pant.
0: Oh, yeah, very different pants. But I guess the, the, the thing that struck me about this the most was how quickly the concept of denim jeans as work pants went from 1873 to 1933 as becoming just the like default option and being deployed at that scale um, in just 60 years, especially uh, with how much more difficult it was to share ideas and concepts like this that they... More or less had to be physically transported, and yeah, that just like denim jeans was something that pretty much, uh, or not all young men at the era, but a lot of young men of the era would have interacted with and had a familiarity with at this point um, between the ages of eighteen and
1: twenty-five. Even without the service of a mood board,
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure that there was a mood board division of
1: the CCC. I would like it's just it's just like a whole bunch of photos. With pine trees and <laughs> yeah, like like the dude ranch dudes, but off duty, you know, mm-hmm. like like four minutes after their shift, smoking a cigarette, it's like, yeah, this is what it is, uh, just to give a sense
0: of what being in the CCC was like, I've got an article here from the washington d c evening star uh in nineteen thirty seven that has a uh, description of what being in the ccc entailed it's sort of a puff piece because it's, it's like an interview with one of the uh ccc leaders that uh director of tales of benefits uh to country of the ccc robert fechner director of the core fechner spoke on the national radio forum sponsored jointly by the washington star and the national broadcasting co his review of the CCC was particularly timely because a new enlistment period begins October 1 with 100,000 vacancies to be filled. Citing the educational courses offered enrollees and their spare time and the practical training given to them in their work, the director spoke also of the reforestation, erosion prevention, and other conservation measures which the CCC is carrying out on a large scale. Hey, erosion, they're getting back at the Dust Bowl there. For the 17th time since the Civilian Conservation Corps was launched as an emergency relief reforestation measure in the spring of 1933, the doors of hundreds of CCC camps will be thrown open next month to admit replacements needed to fill vacancies caused by the discharge of enrollees who have found private employment or have left the Corps at the conclusion of their period of enrollment. So it was a thing that, too, that was designed to give a lot of these workers or young men Practical work skills, so they could go out and find their own work after joining the CCC. So it wasn't a thing that they were supposed to be in for a long period of time, but just you know, sort of like the New Deal to kickstart the economy going, to kickstart the uh, working life of these young men.
1: So if we got the Green New Deal through by some miracle, what do you think the pant of choice would be, or the the material? What would uh, the twenty twenty one CCC Uniform B.
0: Oh, it's gotta be hemp. Hemp? Oh yeah, gotta be hemp. Gotta be hemp. Yeah, probably like hemp denim, I would or or duck canvas, I would imagine.
1: Do they go cargoes because we've added that that uh technology since the original triple C? Just for a little more utility?
0: I think you could get some some cargoes. You get some extra pants, certainly a hammer loop. Definitely uh hammer. probably a cell phone pocket. Yes. Um. Yeah, that's a fun thing to think of, of like this in relation to the Green New Deal and how necessary a lot of the programs that they had back in this time period would be now. This is also like the CCC, the CCC helped educate a lot of these people, too, that there's a statistic that uh, 50,000 young men have been taught to read and write. 500,000 have been enrolled in elementary, I mean up here. Elementary subjects, 300,000 in high school subjects, and 40,000 in college subjects. That's like almost a
1: million people.
0: Yeah. And at this point in 1937, they say that they have enrolled uh, 2 million people in the CCC. And that since 1933, enrollees have planted more than 1.25 billion trees, built close to 100,000 miles of truck trails and minor roads, expanded more than 4 million man days fighting forest fires. Very relevant in 2020, uh, laid over 50,000 miles of telephone lines, constructed more than 3 million check dams as a soil erosion control measure, and greatly expanded recreational facilities in our parks and forests. Just like, yo, all these people sitting around that can't find work. Why doesn't the government just put them to work to things that help uh, all of us live our lives better? And why don't they wear denim while they're doing it? Or hemp. Or hemp. I mean, you make hemp denim, you uh, go back to the interview that we did with uh, Morrison uh, a few months ago, he talked about hemp denim for like an hour and how uh, amazing that would be because, you know, hemp denim uses like a quarter of the water as cotton in about half the land or one of those relations to each other.
1: Hemp seems like it's like that magical elixir plant that just. For whatever reason, can't catch on like they build public housing out of it in South Africa because it doesn't burn down like the the combustion point is like 500 degrees higher than wood.
0: Um, Well, you know, the conspiracy theories surrounding hemp, right? Not well enough. Oh, well, this is a subject for a different podcast entirely, but a lot of the uh, denigration of hemp and outlaw of hemp was by the cotton lobby. Because they felt threatened by it because it was a much better fiber. They financed Reefer
1: Madness? They did. What? Really? That was just a shot in the dark? No, they actually did. That's amazing. That movie is, like, talk about batshit crazy movies. Like, that movie, that movie is nuts. Mm -hmm. A dude smokes one joy and starts playing the piano like a maniac and then kills his friend.
0: But just wait until we get to the movie Blue Denim when we get to the 50s, which was basically uh, a reefer madness, but for jeans, saying that if you wore jeans, it would cause teen pregnancy. Show me the lie. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Yeah, just wrapping up here, that emphasizing how incredible the CCC is and shows the capabilities of the government when it's used for the good of its citizens. So uh, America's response to those other countries that didn't respond to economic crisis by having uh, their young people wear jeans will be the subject of our next episode denim at war but uh, we'll get there next week Oh, so, my name is david i'm reed and thank you all so much for listening if you like what we're doing please drop us a review give us a shout out or maybe buy something uh from the shop with your blowout discount 10 percent with the code blowout Uh, and if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, read, what's our email
1: blowout B L O W O U T at
0: heddles.com. Thanks again. And tune in next week.